Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. My name is Casey Tigret. I'm your host. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. This year, I don't, I don't know what the word for 2020 is going to be. There's always a, a word for every year. I shudder to think what it might be, but part of me thinks it might be the word novel. We have the novel coronavirus and we have used the other word unprecedented so many times that it, the word has lost all meaning. And yet it sort of encapsulates the way that we often look at life. We look at life as this is the first time that something like this has ever happened. And especially when it comes to the political situation that we're currently in in America. If you're listening to this in another country, um, you may not be feeling the effects of American politics, but you definitely are watching and maybe with amusement what's going on here. But ultimately, there's this feeling like what's happening right now is unprecedented. It's unusual. But if we ever want to understand whether that's true or not, the easiest way to understand it is to go to the historians. And today we have a conversation with Kristen Cobus Dumay, who is a historian who teaches at Calvin College, and she's written a fantastic new book called Jesus and John Wayne. And in this book, she talks about the basic wedding between American white evangelicalism masculinity, and militarism with American politics. That's a mouthful. I get it. But ultimately, her goal in this book, and ultimately, my goodness, the goal of this conversation, and I believe it, I believe this happens, is to come to an understanding that we're all about to, in America, about to walk into an election week next week. We're going to walk into a moment that we have no idea what's about to happen, but we all carry with us a historical story, especially those of us who are followers of Jesus and especially those of us who grew up in some sort of evangelical culture. We carry with us this story. So how do we wisely step into the voting booth, into the week of the election and the aftermath thereof? How do we step into it wisely, understanding the bigger picture. For that, I now turn you to my conversation with Kristen Cobes. Well, Kristen, thank you for taking some time today. Um, this is, we've talked about a little bit that this is, this is a strange, all the conversations I've had during the pandemic have been strange, but we're, we're at a very interesting time uh, the week before the presidential election in America and all kinds of things are going on. So in the midst of all that, in the midst of your teaching and everything else you have going on, thanks for taking some time to talk about your book. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I start the same place and it, it grounds, I feel like it grounds our conversation and, uh, people who listen have grown to expect this, but I w- especially from your perspective as someone who lives in the world of history, uh, I think this has a, I think you'll have an interesting and different take on this, but I'd love to hear if, if you were going to define the word wisdom, and it doesn't have to be the full thing, but if you were going to begin to define the word wisdom, where would, where would you start? Where would the beginning point be for you? Yeah, I have a a working definition that I use and I share with my students for every history class I teach. Uh, And it is uh, wisdom is understanding how to live well and 
understanding how the world works so that the means that we decide to pursue towards living well are actually conducive to those ends. Uh, and this is uh, actually, I'm, I'm stealing here from, I teach at Calvin University, a Christian university, and we have a, a very lengthy core curriculum statement that includes core virtues of an education, of a Christian liberal arts education. And so this draws on, on uh, theological tradition stretching back, you know, centuries. And, um, and I, I've always, as a historian, particularly loved the, the virtue of wisdom, right? Because it's not just of what we want to do, but understanding how the world works. And that's really what history can show us um, so that we, we can avoid as many unintended consequences of well-intentioned actions as possible. Oh, goodness. That, I, you had way more in that than I was expecting. That's beautiful. <laughs> Is there a... Is there so there's a lot that's institutional there. There's a lot that has to do with Calvin, has to do with your your as a teacher. Per, who are what are the influences of wisdom for you personally? Um, as you as you go into the work that you do, as you as you as an individual carry, who are the people who have really shaped that definition for you personally? Oh, that's a good question. I'm so I've always been kind of intellectually oriented. And so um, uh, kind of theological uh, writings have have often spoken to me, um, particularly those that that illuminate um, the pursuit of justice. And so for me, um, really reading in uh, uh, the black Protestant tradition has informed my own faith tradition. And not just kind of big names, but um, uh, many like smaller names as a historian, right? I come across um, in archives and in um, kind of historical documents, just writings from people who are outside of the mainstream of white Christianity. And I'm continually struck by this just amazing spiritual um, uh, resource that um, as a white Christian, I was largely oblivious to growing up and in my own faith formation. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's, it's really my, my historical research that repeatedly introduces me to, um, you know, little known voices in magazines and in, um, and in, you know, obscure books that, that just are, are a reminder that, uh, even though I grew up in a tradition that liked to, so I'm reformed, um, that like to claim as most traditions do, you know, like kind of the ultimate arbiters of truth. <clears throat> I'm repeatedly surprised by the truth and grace and wisdom that is found outside of my own tradition. Yeah. Gosh, I hear, I hear that. I feel that I, I was talking to someone that I, I went through four years of Bible college four years of master's degree, four years of doctorate in both uh, both of the, those eight years in seminary. And I never once was exposed to Howard Thurman yes. or James Cone or yes. Willie James Jennings or, you know, it's any of these, these, you know, traditional black voices, theological voices, uh, spiritual, yeah. mystical voices. And so I, I resonate deeply with that. And, and really and truthfully, that gets us to the heart of, of what you've written and uh, talking about history, I really do believe the universal is always in the particulars. And so as a historian always writes history from their particular vantage point. Yes. And you and I share a vantage point as being white, Christian, 
you know, of a European descent mm-hmm. um, and inheriting sort of the language and the traditions of that. Uh, wh- how, how then, when you set out to write a book like the one you've written, Jesus and John Wayne, you, you turn the camera back on your own yes. tradition. How did that begin for you? The, huh. the turning the lens from this is where I'm standing to I need to look backwards to uh, to take a perspective on where I'm at before I walk into this. Oh, I love that question. Um, I, I guess one way um, I would I, I, I'll, I'll answer it in a couple of different ways. Um, one, I, I grew up kind of on the fringes of evangelical uh, evangelicalism. Right. I, re- I grew up in a confessionally reformed ethnic subculture um, in Northwest Iowa. My mom was an, an immigrant from the Netherlands herself. And so I never really fully identified as an evangelical. Um, and then when I went off to graduate school and started studying evangelicalism, I met kind of real evangelicals who are coming direct from Bob Jones University and Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College. And, you know, theologically, I had a lot in common with these folks, but um, uh, culturally, I only had some things in common. You know, they they had all this insider speak, inside jokes, and um, and most were also men, and actually they all were. <laughs> and um and I my my only real points of like connection were through the popular culture that I had participated in, Christian contemporary music, uh, you know, Bible study books, you know, this this popular Christian culture. Well, I only had one bookstore in my small town and it was a Christian bookstore. And so that was, you know, my exposure to this world. Um, so so right away I was attuned to the role of popular culture. But then I, I would say that I think gender played a role here. So yes, I'm white and I'm Christian and you know, always had a toe in this evangelical subculture. But as a woman, it was very clear that there were there were boundaries set up, um, and, and particularly as a woman who studied theology and religion and who was intellectual. Um, when I, you know, compared my own experiences and my own opportunities um, and positioning to that of my male classmates, the majority of whom were coming in with, you know, ministry degrees and were preaching on the side and were just very um, confident uh, within the evangelical world. And um, I, I came to see that for as a woman, I could see some of the boundaries more clearly simply because I was bumping up against them. And I also, uh, my course of study involved a set, uh, involved gender and also race as a cultural historian. And so listening to the voices of people who were not white, I also came to see how they um, were, these boundaries were very visible to people who were not white in evangelical cultures as well. And so I think it was a combination of my own experience as a woman, but then also very much my own training in cultural history in the study of race and gender that gave me eyes to see boundaries that uh, and unspoken rules, well, sometimes they were spoken, but things that were not as readily visible to white men who were also evangelicals, who were also writing the history of evangelicalism. Yeah. Uh, what I love about the, the waters I swim in often are those of the Christian spiritual formation. And what I love about everything that you've said is typically the language and the conversations around formation have to do with practices and theology and things like that. But there are these other forces that form us, these other elements that are in the water 
And yes. especially, it feels like right now in a cultural moment, that's why I, I love that we're having this conversation a week before the presidential election, um, because all everything that you've said from race to gender to uh, evangelicalism, so race and gender right now, I feel like everybody, most everybody is going, okay, yeah, those are hot button things. But mm-hmm. it's the evangelicalism that's like, well, what does is, what is religion and politics have to do with each yes. other? Yeah. And uh, even to the point where people in my own church have said, you know, I, I don't come to church to hear politics, yes. to which I have some other some rebuttals, you know, <laughs> like, how do you really think Jesus was crucified and all that good stuff? But it was a very political moment. But I think this is where the genius of your book starts. And so I think to help people understand what you're writing, we have to get our hands around some definitions. Yeah. Uh, so for you in the book. What, how would you define the term white evangelicalism? Because I think that's yeah. a really important, not just because it's in the subtitle, but because I think it's a really important concept for people to grab onto. Oh, it is. So uh, white evangelicals uh, describe themselves according to theological beliefs, right? And so if you go to the website of the National Association of Evangelicals, and they, they will quickly say we are not just white evangelicals, we are evangelicals. So, you know, we represent um, uh, people of all races, and in fact, the world over. Uh, but uh, so they will they will draw on some kind of theological doctrines and beliefs. So upholding the authority of the scriptures, the centrality of Christ's atonement, Atonement and, um, and and really, you know, advance a uh, the importance of conversionism, born again experience. These are the things that define evangelicalism, according to the National Association of Evangelicals, and in fact, many scholars of evangelicalism, many of whom happen to be white male evangelicals themselves. Uh, I found that definition limiting. I I intended to use that, you know, drop that in my introduction and then go on and write the book I needed to write. Um, But increasingly, I I found that that definition was coming up short. Well, even the first first part, the authority of scripture versus inerrancy. Exactly, exactly. That debate is one of the first things that sort of pops out to me. Yeah. And which parts of scripture, right? And that's a point that I make in the book. So, uh, you know, in fact, uh, we are all bringing cultural lenses to the scriptures. So which parts of the scriptures are we holding up as, you know, this is the guide to faithful living and which parts of the scriptures are we ignoring or explicitly rejecting? And and that's what I I became really curious about in this book. Um, And plus I have the experience of my own students, many of whom are evangelicals who come my way. And um, in the last decade or so, I've really seen what appears to be a decline in religious literacy, Mm -hmm. uh, in theological literacy. And so I I started to wonder, you know, does it really make sense to uphold a theological definition of evangelical if in fact, and many surveys bear this out, um, an alarming number of quote unquote evangelicals hold theological views that qualify as heresy. Um, and again, this this religious literacy is just so thin. So then what does describe um, what it means to be an evangelical? And that's where I was really drawn to exposure to popular culture, to Christian radio, to Christian publishing, right? And, and these are the, the, this is really what ends up forming religious and cultural identity of evangelicals and binding them to each other. Um, so my understanding of evangelicalism is a cultural understanding. And for that reason, it is also very much um, 
distinctive in in terms of its racial composition. Mm -hmm. If you looked at the lived, if you look at the lived experience of evangelicals, most white evangelicals do not, in fact, you know, fellowship with, if you want to use an evangelical term, many um, people who um, are not white. Um, and if you look at their consumption of popular culture, many um, people who are not white do not um, consume the same Christian radio, Christian publishing that white evangelicals do. And many black Protestants, in fact, who share the theological beliefs that might qualify them as evangelicals refuse to identify as evangelicals mm -hmm. because they see the importance of these cultural facets. There's so much. There's so much territory, which is why you wrote a book. That's, yes. you know, it's, that's why it's, not a, it's, why it's yes. not a blog post or a pamphlet. Um, but what I what I love is how that that definition is the core. And I think people listening are like, OK, well, I, I know what that means. But why? So what's the point? You start historically to unfold the story of not just the definition of evangelicals and white evangelicals, mm -hmm. but the amount of influence yeah. and the way that white evangelicals have have shaped American American pol political yeah. culture. And so, but this was the part that blew my mind and the part I kept coming back to going, oh my gosh, when I read the title and it said Jesus and John Wayne, I was like, I don't know what John Wayne has to do with this. <laughs> so talk about how kind of John Wayne becomes the key throughout the book to understanding the movements yeah, of yeah. American white evangelicals and their influence and connection in politics and culture. Yeah. Yeah, so um, this is essentially a book about white evangelical masculinity and militarism. Um, but I went with a trade publisher and uh, their sales team had some pretty strict rules about titling the book. And they said I could not use the word masculinity or militarism because those words were too long. So, <laughs> not, that they were, not that they were inaccurate. They were just too no, long. No, no, no. That's what the book's about, right? So I needed to find a way to talk about the book without using the two key words that the book is actually about. They wouldn't yeah. let you use words like dudes in war. They wouldn't be. <laughs> well, you know, they'd actually go for that. That'd be cool. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, that's a little backstory there. Um, so what does John Wayne have to do with this? Uh, when I started investigating, and this was actually more than 15 years ago, I started looking into the literature on Christian masculinity, evangelical masculinity, um, books like John Eldridge's Wild at Heart and James Dobson's Bringing Up Boys and, and other books. Um, and, and there's, you know, millions of these books have been have been sold and read by evangelicals. Uh, and what what struck me immediately was, you know, for all their talk of being Bible believing Christians, again, this, you know, upholding the authority of the scriptures, the books that they were writing on Christian masculinity actually had very few Bible verses. And those that were included were, you know, completely ripped out of context. So this this vision of Christian manhood was not actually drawing on the scriptures. Instead, authors were looking to Hollywood, um, to Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, huge favorite, um, to mythical warriors and soldiers and cowboys and really kind of secular models of masculinity. Um, and, and I noticed that the actor John Wayne just kept popping up as the icon of American masculinity, the icon of Christian masculinity, because for evangelicals that had embraced Christian nationalism, and that is a key part of the story of Jesus and John Wayne, uh, right? American and Christian masculinity, uh, you know, in their ideal form were um, one and the same. Mm -hmm. 
And, and so um, what I, I ended up just pulling that thread through the book. And John Wayne is this great example because in the 19, well, he, he first becomes uh, the star that he becomes because of starring in, in Westerns in the 1940s and, and, and later. Um, and then in the late 40s, he stars as a, a hero in World War II, The Sands of Iwo Jima. So he kind of takes this, this um, myth of the American cowboy, you know, good versus evil, and then brings that into the, the, the you know, World War II, the good war. So it's a perfect fit. And then he's starring in, you know, the Green Berets, and he brings this good war heroism and the good guy versus bad guy into, you know, the battlefields of Vietnam. And, and he does so at a time by then, by the 1970s, when many Americans are questioning, you know, quote unquote, traditional manhood, questioning American militarism, American greatness and goodness, American power, um, and the US military. And that's when evangelicals are embracing these ideals. And they're doing so over against the rest of the American population. And so somebody like John Wayne, both in his politics, right, he's, he's a supporter of Goldwater, huge supporter of Reagan, and, and comes to symbolize conservative masculinity and this kind of retrograde white patriarchy. Um, he, he comes to symbolize that. And as he does, evangelicals start to embrace him. And so he's, he's this kind of secular model that they embrace and then they present as as Christian manhood, as Christian masculinity. So the Jesus and John Wayne really gets at, you know, the embrace of the secular and also the, the huge significance of popular culture in the story that I tell, both in shaping evangelical ideals and then evangelicals using their own um, production of popular culture to really um, form and shape the ideals of, of others. Well, and I think John Wayne presents this pregnant moment too, because you know, I, I knew of him as an actor. I did, I knew of somewhat of the influence. Um, and I knew, I knew more about the William Wallace, uh, you yeah. and I talked before yeah. we got on my Christian development, like <laughs> core of it was nineties to 2000. So Braveheart and Wild yes. Heart and all that stuff was really popular. But the thing that stuck with me and, and, you know, history is always about foreshadowing, right? We, we yes. see the president in light of what's already happened. John Wayne was not an evangelical. Nope. Uh, morally, multiple marriages, questionable attitudes and actions towards the, you know, his, his spouses. And, and there feels like this, and then evangelicals rally around him because of what yeah. he represents. And there's this yeah. moment as you're reading that where you go, I've heard this yes. story before. Um, so so there's a lot that's packed into this, but you start in the 50s with with really the John Wayne. And then as you walk through the history, we begin to see this this movement of evangelicalism towards power. Yes. What is the need there? Historically, what is the need that evangelical, white evangelicals especially, why is there all of a sudden such a strong need for especially American political power. Yeah, yeah. There's not one simple answer to that. Um, you know, part of it is coming out of the 1920s, 1930s, where uh, conservative Protestants were feeling marginalized. Uh, uh, you know, they had lost control of some, uh, you know, major denominations. Uh, and, 
And it wasn't that they had disappeared at all. Um, that that narrative can be overblown, but they had really um, kind of scattered and were very busy building, you know, little empires and Bible colleges and schools. And and then in the 1940s, um, they decided to come together and and band together so that they could have greater cultural influence because evangelicals have always believed that they kind of have a corner on biblical truth. Uh, and and that's you know anybody who has a faith a commitment to a, a you know their own faith is going to think that they have a corner on truth. So there's nothing, you know, particularly unique about evangelicals there. Although I think they they have tended to draw the the boundaries a little bit sharper um, than than folks in other faith traditions who might be more open to truth can also exist outside of, of the, you know, the walls of our own community. But evangelicals really did feel that they had this burden to bear. Um, and and um, that they that they needed to use their influence, use their power in order to keep America faithful. They believed that America was a Christian nation, was founded as such. That's historically problematic, but it was very you know central to their identity. And so they they really felt that it was you know on them to um, to to shore up American faithfulness and. And so, so there are some, you know, you, you might call them good intentions, even if misguided intentions and the understanding that particularly as the rest of American culture seemed to be going in another direction, particularly by the 1960s, that they needed, they needed political power in order to protect Christianity to protect America, to protect Christian America, if you will. Um, and so so they want to use that political power. Now, this is like kind of the, the positive spin that I can put on it. Um, but when you get into the particulars, you also see time and again how it's individual leaders who are promoting this um, quest for power. And they are doing so in a way that stokes fear in the hearts of their followers, you know, fear of uh, the, the loss of of faith, fear of, you know, our own marginalization, fear of we're losing religious freedom, you know, fear of communism, fear of radical Islam. There's lots of fears that are actively stoked by leaders. And what I came to see on an individual basis is this was usually done in order to promote the power of that particular leader, yeah. right? Because it consolidates their own power. They can come in as the savior, as the strong man, as the defender, the protector of the flock. And so they can get the donations for their organizations. They can enhance their own power. And that understanding has to also be part of our understanding of evangelicalism writ large. creates, I mean, obviously the scenario, and, and I'm sure there are people listening who are like, I don't get this. There are certain people listening who are like, no, no, no. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now some things are starting to make sense. Yeah. When you have basically what becomes creating a civil religion, yeah. when you have patriotism and Christianity or Amer nationalism and Christianity wed together, there is a natural movement towards contradiction. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think what's important, it, there's different kinds of civil religions, right? There's a civil religion that kind of unites all Americans or, you know, draws Americans in. But that's not what we're looking at here. Um, so if you want to go back to John Eldridge's book, um, right, at the heart of, of his conception of Christian masculinity is that God is a warrior God and that men are made in his image and every man has a battle to fight now if if every man needs a battle to fight to be a proper christian man to image god properly what's required there are enemies right we need enemies because men need to fight their battles and so this particular civil religion if you will this conflation of of christianity and nationalism and patriotism always requires enemies both internal or domestic and external and we really see that working out so so this um conception of christian masculinity really fosters a broader militancy within the faith um, and works against any conception of the common good and this is where you know some of the bible verses is, verses that i was talking about just being ignored or explicitly rejected are things like love your neighbor as yourself love your enemies turn the other cheek uh, right, the, all the fruits of the spirit, right? Th those don't apply to Christian men, to leaders. They can't um, because, you know, God filled men with testosterone so that they can fight to protect and defend uh, family, faith, and nation. And so, you know, those softer virtues, those might be great for, for the ladies, um, but for the men that God has appointed to lead their families and their nation, right? Those, those rules just don't apply. And, and that's really the, the corrupted a faith part of my subtitle that I'm referring to. Yeah. And there's that, that wedding together of militarism and and so there's a tendency i think if, if people are listening to this to say well that's history okay um great that's good to know but really and truthfully it's it, it's carrying forward uh, i was driving the other day and i saw someone who had a, a tailgate on their truck that said we stand for the flag but we kneel for the cross Yes. And that wedding of those two things, or there's only one, two people who have ever given their lives for you, Jesus Christ and the American soldier. And yes. we see that. And, and for a lot of people who are even, who are even listening right now, they're like, so what's wrong with that? Yeah. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Uh, because right. what happens when the one is actually operating in a direction that is antithetical to the other? Exactly. So one of the, the strands of the story that I tell in Jesus and John Wayne is this increasingly tight connection between U.S. evangelicals and the U.S. military. Um, and you can see that play out from the time of really World War II, then especially the Korean War. It really, really crystallizes during the Vietnam War, where you see um, the effects then are um, pretty much anything that American soldiers do is going to be labeled Christian and good and um, righteous. And um, and 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 that really does constrain the ability of Christians to critique American power and to critique the U.S. military when needed. Um, and and it was fascinating to kind of um, unravel this this alliance that now we kind of take for granted this you know patriotism and militarism, and to see that somebody like James Dobson, you know, family values guru, played the critical role in in kind of binding this relationship between uh, the U.S. military and family values of 
evangelicalism. Um, and, and so it's no coincidence that right, his headquarters sit across, across the interstate from uh, the, the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And, and there's just really interesting connections there. Um, yeah, so that, that is um, part, of, part of the story. But also I will say in terms of, you know, what's wrong with us? Why does this matter? Um, to use the stand for the flag, um, kneel for the cross. Uh, this is, of course, a very, um, uh, this reflects distinctively white Christian values, mm. all right, because who was, who was kneeling um, before the flag, um, right, Colin Kaepernick, and to draw attention to racial violence. And, um, you know, this is something that when, when many white Christians say, well, what, you know, what's wrong with that? When you go into your Hobby Lobby store and you can find wall plaques um, with that phrase on it, you can find, um, you know, the thin blue line um, police flag um, as a wall plaque in, in Hobby Lobby, of course, you know, owned by a uh, very um, powerful evangelical family and is a favorite um, big box store of American evangelicals, of white evangelicals. Uh, this is very much a white religious identity. And historically, um, this makes a ton of sense. But the whiteness is often invisible to white Christians, right? And these are just, you know, they've embraced this. These are just Christian values. These are just American values. Um, but but that's not actually the case. These are very distinctively white Christian values. And you really, in the book, you there's no condi- I, I think the wonderful thing that I read is that there is a directness in the way you're writing, but there's not a condemnation. Yeah. There's not a you horrible white people. There's there's more because you know, you can't say that and not point the fingers. We can't say that and not right, point the fingers right. at ourselves. Right. There is though a very laying things out and making them very plain as to not only the realities but also the consequences. And so one of them is from evangelicalism up into politics, but yeah. the other is this this very uncomfortable thing of how the masculinity and the militarism has trickled down into the church. Yeah. And you you talk about some some very specific scandals within large evangelical megachurches having to do with men who teach this level of masculinity and have this corresponding ethical moral gap that gets discovered. Yeah. How do those two things intertwine? How did they intertwine for you as you were writing it? Because you could have just stayed on the line of talking about America and evangelical influence on politics, but seeing how it came back into the church, how did how did that come about for you? Yeah, so I started investigating this, uh, you know, this topic, evangelical um, masculinity and militarism more than 15 years ago. And then for a variety of reasons, I, I kind of set the project aside. I was finishing up other projects, having a few kids and uh, always intending to come back to it. But I, I didn't um, completely ignore it either. I, I kept tabs on many of the the, the guys that I had had um, been studying and um, what I saw in ensuing years over the past decade, uh, one after another of the men who were kind of the strongest promoters of this militant Christian masculinity became implicated either directly or indirectly in scandals, uh, abuse of power, um, as in the case of Mark Driscoll, for example, or in many, many cases, sexual abuse scandals. And either as perpetrators, again, directly 
direct involvement or as defenders of their friends who are perpetrators. And so I watched this. I took notes. I, I kept, you know, documents open on these guys. And at this point, this was pre-Me Too era. Uh, so the stories were largely being told on blogs um, from survivors and survivor advocates. And so I just want to give a huge shout out to so many of these survivors who, who demonstrated such courage in bringing to light their own stories so that um, scholars like me could, could um, make sense of them in terms of broader patterns and understand that you know, these were not just individual failings, that uh, these horrible stories were actually part of a larger, bigger story that, that was important, deeply important on, personal, on a personal level. In, in individual um, cases, families, churches, organizations, but also I think on a national level, right? And so it was exactly four years ago, October, 2016, when I decided to kind of dust off this research again. And it was in light of the Access Hollywood tape release. Mm. When we saw, you know, that, um, uh, you know, very clear evidence of then candidate Trump bragging about sexually assaulting women really didn't shake his evangelical supporters. And of course, three, four weeks later, we saw that, you know, according to exit polls, 81% of white evangelicals seem to have no trouble voting for him. Uh, you know, these quote unquote family values evangelicals. And that's when it just, it dawned on me, like I'd seen this before, of course, of course, we've seen this before. And so I really wanted to explore this deeper history. What was it about ideas of sex sexuality and gender and power uh, within evangelicalism made this not a betrayal of evangelical values, but really the fulfillment of, of what I had been seeing that this kind of militant white patriarchy has to be placed at the center of any understanding of family values, evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, I'll also say that, you know, you, you asked about the or you mentioned that this is this is hard hitting in some ways. The book has been um, summarized by one reviewer as urgent and sharp elbowed, and I really I like that um, that phrasing. I think that gets it just right. There's an urgency here, and um, and there are some harsh truths. But many people have actually said that having read this, they have more empathy for white evangelicals because history is something that, you know, it can show how this came to be. Otherwise, you're just kind of left with this, you know, inexplicable situation that just invites allegations of hypocrisy or, you know, just harsh judgment. And there's a place for judgment here. Um, but I think by spelling out how evangelicals came to hold these current values, um, you know, you don't necessarily like those values any better necessarily, but you can understand that there is some coherence to this thinking. Yeah. Probably nowhere for me did, was it better seen than, because you begin the book in 2016. The book's mm -hmm. narrative starts in 2016, yes. you go backwards, and then at the end you finish in 2016 again. Yeah. Um, there's probably no greater coherence for me, and you've mentioned this, uh, historian John Fay has also mentioned this mm -hmm. in his book called Believe Me, um, is the reaction of evangelicals to Bill Clinton yeah. versus the reaction of evangelicals to Donald Trump. Yes. Talk, talk a bit about the gap there, because I think that story is really a, a great illustration of what you're talking about. 
Yeah. So somebody like Bill Clinton, right, really represented uh, none of the uh, political values that evangelicals held dear, right? He was a draft dodger, a marijuana smoker, and he had a feminist wife. And uh, although he was a Southern Baptist, right, not the right kind. Um, so certainly not after the the conservative um, takeover or uh, resurgence, however you want to put it of the SBC. And so, so they were already poised to uh, reject or critique um, Bill Clinton's behavior. And so it was very easy for them to condemn his sexual misconduct. Uh, and, and they did so with glee in the 1990s. And, um, and because they were um, uh, you know, so outspoken about that, it's not hard for a historian to find ample evidence of, you know, they're claiming that um, personal character and, you know, sexual uh, behavior were absolutely essential for any good leader and certainly for the leader of our nation. Uh, and, and then we can see this, you know, complete flip-flop when it comes to Donald Trump and his own sexual indiscretions and, you know, a a really astounding survey data that, that shows within, you know, two years, really evangelicals, you know, once Trump came along had completely reversed their views that character matters in terms of national leadership. Um, and so, yes, on the surface, just this is rife with hypocrisy. And on a certain level, of course it is. Um, But what I was able to see is that somebody like Donald Trump actually fulfilled many of their expectations of what strong masculine and yes, Christian leadership looked like Mm. Um, because, and, and, and here too, the influence of kind of secular culture, precisely because he had not been shaped by Christian virtues, by the fruits of the spirit, you know, no, not much evidence there that he has been. Um, He was filled with testosterone, just like God, you know, designed men to be. So he was ruthless and yes, he was going to be crass. This just showed that he had the toughness that was needed to lead this nation in such perilous times, right? Um, when when evangelicals felt increasingly embattled. Now, of course, they felt embattled for a very long time, and that that really helps um, again uh, consolidate uh, the power of of their leaders. Um, this the sense of embattlement. But Donald Trump could be kind of embraced and excused in terms of his living into this militant masculinity that was necessary for the protection of Christianity, protection of America. Um, And so within that framework, his sexual indiscretions were excusable or forgivable, uh, or in some cases, just evidence that, you know, this is a man's man we're dealing with. And, you know, as one Christian writer said in a previous context, if you want a a tamer or quieter animal, go ahead and castrate him. But that's not what we need right now. And there's, that is so potent because, again, that I, I've just been coming back to this phrase, and, and you can critique this, please, if you would. I just feel like moments of crisis kind of bring us to the crossroads of our contradictions. Yeah. There's this spot where all of a sudden we're confronted with the fact that we want to follow the teachings of Jesus, but we want a president who looks more like a certain image of the Revelation, Book of Revelation yes. Jesus, than the you know, as, as Mark Driscoll even called him, you know, the, the limp-wristed hippie Jesus. Yes. And the, that imagery, that imagery is troubling. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
right, we, we've seen this kind of feminization of many of the Christian virtues, right? So, so there's a place for gentleness. Absolutely. There's a place for kindness and self-control, um, but that's with women, right? And so women need to be modest and they need to be sweet and they need to be submissive. Um, and again, there's not really precedent for this in scripture of, of taking, you know, the fruits of the spirit, the, the commands to love neighbors, to love enemies, and to say that only applies to women. Um, but that's really what we see happening. And, um, and I think, you know, I think that there's just a long Christian tradition, uh, human tradition of, of claiming power, of seizing power. And so, you know, I'm a Calvinist <laughs> and I'm a practicing Christian. And so I have my own theological resources on which I can draw. Uh, but, you know, there, there does seem to be like the pull of the human heart is, is one towards power and towards claiming power, then justifying the exercise of power, you know, sanctifying the exercise of power. But as a, as a Christian, I think that, you know, the scriptures teach us that, you know, Jesus was so shocking to his followers because he did not embrace that model of power. He explicitly rejected it, emptied himself, right. Um, and, and offered himself as a sacrifice. And, and so to follow Christ, you know, ought to look incredibly countercultural in a world in which so many people really are trying to exercise power, claim power over others and justify that. And the book is filled with so many just rich, clear, detailed examples of how that leaning for power has affected us. Uh, so I want to lean forward now a little bit into the present because I feel like, I, I, well, two things. One, as I was reading the book, I thought, oh, I imagine Kristen is just sitting here watching like the Twitter feed going, I need to write an appendix and another <laughs> one and another one and another one because they're just, they just seem to continue to stack up yeah. stories. Yes. Yes. Uh, from, you know, super, as we start, started talking about the Supreme Court nominees and we start yes. talking, you know, all these things just there's just a constant resurgence of the same theme. Yes. But just as as you and I, as people listening, lean forward into where we are now and in the election season, I think two questions are important. And I'll ask the first one and then we'll, I'll ask the second one after that. But the first one is. So what do we as inheritors of this white evangelical Christian nationalism, what are the things that we probably consider as normative that we just need to critique? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, you're right. I finished the manuscript a year over a year ago, last August, and it's just been, you know, in production since. And in that time, we've had, you know, been struck with a global pandemic and debates about masks and masculinity and uh, you know, white nationalism rearing its head once again, and debates about American history and American heroes. And so, yes, it's it's been a lot. And in this election, the competing visions of masculinity are um, profound, right? That really is one of the leading narratives of this election cycle. And uh, I, I, I'm not adding a new appendix, but my publisher has asked me to write a, a preface to the new edition. And that is due a week after the election. So you can keep me in your thoughts and prayers as I, I have not yet started that. I don't even know how to start that until, until after the election. And even then, I don't know that we'll have any actual results. But um, anyway, I'll just say, what, what do we need to, what do we need to look for? I guess as Christians, as Americans, um, as a Christian, 
I, I am both disturbed and at the same time at peace because, uh, I mean, one of, one of my favorite quotes in the book is a quote by Rachel Den Hollander, um, you know, an advocate, um, for, for sexual abuse survivors and in a conservative evangelical Christian herself. And she reminds us that God does not need our protection. Mm-hmm. I think that is hugely important, uh, that, you know, God's truth does not um, depend on our belief or on our actions. And uh, that, you know, the, the work of the Holy Spirit also is not dependent on our shoring up our own power. Um, so I think Christians of all stripes would do well to remember that. Um, I will also say though, as a, as a US historian and speaking in terms of US history, I, I am more concerned about the resiliency of American democracy right now. And um, I think that Christians need to be self-critical in terms of you know, understanding what their role might be um, within uh, the, the country right now and whether um, their understanding of faithful Christianity uh, conflicts with um, democratic ideals or actually um, aligns with democratic ideals. And I think we need to have some honest conversations around that question and, um, and, and really face up to that. So, so I'm actually more concerned at this point about uh, a widespread commitment to American democracy um, than I am about the, the future of the church. I think the church will be going through dramatic, I mean, already is um, in this moment, going through dramatic um, changes. We could call it a crisis. Um, to me, that that is is in some ways cathartic. Um, that many of these divisions have long been present. Many of these injustices have have been deeply embedded within religious organizations and institutions and belief systems. And it is not a bad thing to bring those to the surface, um, so that we can we can reckon with them. If you had a moment to speak to everyone who's reading, um, is there is there a is there a clear and urgent invitation that you feel that from just, you know, diving and, and crawling through and, and knowing in a book, in the process of writing a book, especially uh, one that covers so much territory, I'm sure there's more on the cutting room floor than made yes. it actually into the book. So you've, you've swam really deeply in all of this. Is there an urgent invitation that you feel like is, is beyond just what you just said? Is there, is there something that you know, the person who's listening or the person who's reading, like there's something that just feels like urgent and hot and immediate that you want to put in front of them and say, you know, read the book. Definitely. Here's the thing that I came away from this with, and I feel Mm -hmm. like I need to give you or at least impress upon you as a person going into an election, walking into a voting booth with this whole you know, heritage of white, yeah. if they are white, I mean, yeah. not yeah. everybody listening is white, but if you're a white evangelical, you walk into the polling place with, or you drop it in the mail, hopefully you drop it in the mail, whatever you do, you, you carry this whole heritage on your back. What is the, what is the white hot invitation for those, for those folks? Mm. So, um, I mean, this heritage, right. None of it was inevitable. 
None of it is God ordained. That's really important. That's what history can do, right? Show us how this came to be. There was a time when conservative Protestants, many conservative Protestants rejected militarism, rejected Christian nationalism. There was a time when the dominant understanding of what it meant to be a Christian man was to be um, a gentleman, to be filled with, with self-restraint and, and gentleness, right? And, and so, so just remember that things have not always been the way they are now. And we should be very curious about how they came to be. Um, but I think even more importantly, when it comes to, to walking into that voting booth, to remember that faithful Christianity in almost every case flourishes when it is not grasping for power. And, and that if you care deeply about the witness of the church, that the things that we need to be protecting are not our own power. Um, the things that we need to be protecting it are, you know, uh, our own faithfulness, our own countercultural presence, our own, our own, you know, obedience in following a Christ that has asked us to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love even our enemies and, and to trust that that is going to be such a distinctive witness in the world in this moment, uh, that that's really where our inner energies ought to be. And that is a life giving, um, kind of centering of our faith. And, and it, it really is a beautiful thing. So that's what I would want to leave people with, not just as they walk into the, the voting booth, but really, um, into each day. Your voice and your courage and what I think is a very prophetic uh, work of history and not just history, but history and, and relevant understandings of where we are and how we got to where we are is, is such a gift. And I can't thank you enough for doing the work and, you know, changing the title so you didn't have militarism and masculinity in it. Dudes in war, you know, dudes in war, if you need to do a rewrite, just, you don't even have to cite me. Dudes in war, we can do that. But I really, really appreciate how you've done this because i i think it it has the strength and the clarity but also the directness and gentleness that uh, we all need it's the truth and love honestly yeah. is what it is so thank you thank you for the gift you've given all of us oh thank you thank you for this conversation i really appreciate it there's no doubt, friends, we covered a lot of territory, a lot of territory. But I hope that that conversation was helpful for you, powerful for you. I hope you heard some things that challenged you and that gave you some insights. And I think the phrase that I left with was when Kristen said that Christianity is flourishing when it's not grasping for power. And I want to carry that with me into this coming week when there's so much about power, there's so much about fear, there's so much about, you know, the bad things that are going to happen if this person doesn't win or if this person doesn't win. And, and honestly, bad things might happen. But ultimately, where the power of Christianity is, is not in the fear of bad things that might happen, but in the joy that we find in living even when bad things do happen. 
Kristen Cobes-Dumay is the author of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. That's a heavy title. I get it. She's a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She has a PhD from Notre Dame, and her research often focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. She uh, has written for the Washington Post, Religion News Service, Christianity Today, Christian Century, The Daily Beast. Uh, She's been interviewed on NPR's Morning Edition, the BBC, CBC, CNN, the New York Times, The Economist. She's been all over over the place, Uh, the PBS NewsHour, the AP, among other outlets. She blogs at a historian's blog uh, on patheos.com called The Anxious Bench. If you want more information on her, you can find that in the show notes. Uh, I want to thank you for listening, and I know this was a, a bit longer of an episode and maybe a bit more of a dig. Uh, But I thank you for listening. I hope it was beneficial. If you're listening on Spotify or iTunes or any other platform, please feel free to rate and review and comment. Uh, That's how I know uh, what's going on and and what's good, what's not so good. Uh, Please, please give me your feedback. I would love to be able to to make this current season, which is coming to a close, better, but also uh, future seasons better as well. If you're listening on my website, thank you for doing that. Uh, Feel free to continue streaming there too. Uh, So my friends, as you go into this election week, may you know that following Jesus doesn't always connect with American patriotism. May you know that creating enemies is often the way that we create our own power. And then when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, it is a way of disrupting the way of power that has been taught to us and handed down to us. And so may we carry that into a week that will be contentious and angry and apocalyptic and the sky will be falling, but ultimately know these things have come and they've gone and the faith and the following of Jesus still stands. Until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. Peace, friends.